Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Matt Johnson, is an extraordinary entrepreneur, an expert in marketing and podcasts. In addition to all of that, he's a very gifted musician. As founder of Pursuing Results, a podcast, PR, and production agency based in San Diego, Matt runs a global virtual team to support and guide business coaches and agencies to open up opportunities and dominate their industry niche through podcasting. Matt currently hosts specialty business podcasts such as Microfamous and Real Estate Uncensored, and recently launched the podcast Pitch Assistant, which is training to help experts gain consistent opportunity in their industry to be a guest on podcasts, but it's all initiated by their internal staff. Matt's journey of success is not only interesting, but profound, and he is humbly inspiring in his clarity of who he is being in the context of all that he does. Listen in, let's get started. Matt Johnson, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. So great to uh, have you join me on the show today. I'm really excited to be here. I know it's going to be a fun conversation. Well, it's a little bit outside of the normal scope because you are, um, and we're not holding this against you because we're Canadian. You are American, and and but th- that's cool. I, I'm excited about it. You know, and uh, we connected. So to give right away to get into uh, and give our listeners insights into who you are. Tell us who you are. What do you do? What's if you know? What's your elevator pitch? And you can go on as long as you want. But when somebody <laughs> says, "Hey, Matt Johnson, what do you do?" What's your what's your quick and easy answer? I make people micro famous, and so what that actually means is that I, I work with a lot of like business coaches and speakers and entrepreneurial experts, maybe. Uh, so I come out of the, like the residential real estate space. We've got some clients in the investing space as well. 
And basically we launch and produce their podcast. So I get to work with really awesome people who have really incredible, deep, really impactful business building content for other entrepreneurs. Most of the people that I work with are people who have built really successful, typically seven-figure service businesses, uh, professional service businesses. And then they want to make an impact. So they turn around and start, you know, coaching and teaching other people. or They, they want to start speaking and they want to write, uh, write books and stuff like that. And they just need a way to kind of build an audience, build influence online, uh, reach, you know, new people that can potentially turn into ideal clients down the road. And I just found from being in that kind of world myself, because I come out of that coaching consulting world in the real estate side, that the most effective thing that we could do is launch a podcast for them. So at one point I was co-hosting three of them in the real estate space. I was on live video and ungodly five to seven hours a week or something like that. And uh, so like you, I had to build kind of a system with my, with a little bit of a team and some freelancers and stuff like that to handle all the behind the scenes stuff. Cause I didn't have time to do any of it myself anymore. And when people started to see like how much content I was producing, other people in the real estate space would just be, you know, would, would ask me about it and essentially let me, the, their first question was, well, can I rent your freelancers when they're not working for you? Like if you've got, you know, if you've got part-timers and that worked until it broke. Right. And then I had to turn it into a real business, but uh, I was still in like three other coaching consulting businesses. And then one of them was, we were working on like being like a, a membership website that was aspiring to be like the Netflix of real estate education, which is a terrible idea for many reasons. But anyway, point being, I got out of all that stuff and uh, and focused on the agency. So now I just do that one thing. We sell one type of package to one type of person, which is a lot of fun because now I get to run the agency in essentially a handful of hours a week and everything else is optional. So do you consider yourself a, as like a marketing company of some, or are you really, are you, well, you talk about, you know, you're supporting coaches and business guys, but you're in, in some regard, you're being the coach to those coaches and those business guys in terms of being the term micro famous, which is kind of a cool term, but are you marketing as well? Or are you actually, or are you just guiding them how to push it out? You're telling them how to get it pushed out, how to do it. No, I, I would consider myself a marketing company because mm -hmm. we're doing it for them. Yeah. It's all, it's all done for you. Yeah. Cause I mean, just working with the people that I, that I do, they're a lot like you, like you want to just, you want to have that thing set up so that you roll in and you sit down and you record and you have the conversation and you walk away and everything else kind of happens. Uh, Cause that's what I built for myself. I knew that that's what I needed. And I knew that that's what all my friends in the coaching consulting business needed. And so, yeah, that's, we, that's the direction we went. It's all fully done for you now stacked on top of that. I want to work with them a lot on the strategy, which is why I wrote the book. And it just, that, that's what got me thinking about the concepts that ended up in the book was I just, I, I tried to pay as much attention to, what actually got results? What was the difference between the people who succeeded in the coaching consulting business and who didn't, you know, like who struggled to get ideal clients and just working out the commonalities and then putting that into a structure. And I noticed that just a lot of my friends and clients were the types that they wanted to focus more on getting clients results than being visible on social media, which creates a problem because right now that's where most clients come from. Mm -hmm. You know, like the more active you are, like if you follow Gary Vee, the more active you are, the more content you create, the more sales you make. And that that can work. And and a lot of my friends and clients, that's that essentially they're bombarded with that message. And so I was looking for a way to help them get their message out without putting the responsibility on them of taking 15 selfies a day for Instagram. Right. And that that's so that's kind of what led me down that uh that train of thought. But yeah, I mean I just, I tried to build the business in such a way because I watched a lot of people and I'm sure you know a lot of them where they build really successful seven and eight figure businesses and then look up five years later and realize they're miserable. And then they 
try to figure out why and that they're realized they're not making an impact on people. And I just tried to build a business that gave me that sense of fulfillment and impact like within the business itself. So I didn't look up five years later and realize now I got to do something else because I'm burned out on the business itself. You know, Microfame is, is kind of self-explanatory, but where did that thought process come from? What was behind the name? It came from the, I would say kind of an almost a, an accidental split test that, that I was running in podcasting because I was hosting two different shows, both in the residential real estate space. One was very, very focused on like the higher end of the market. And then the other one was more like a mass audience. In fact, I'm jumping on that podcast after you and I get done. And it's a lot of fun. And we're live every Friday on Facebook. And it's a blast. And I love my co-host. He's one of my best friends. And we built like this mainstream audience because it's almost like a morning radio style show for residential real estate. And it's like that particular podcast got all the downloads, all the accolades. It made, you know, the top list or whatever. And it got me published in Inman News and, and that sort of thing which I don't know how big that is in Canada. It's a big thing in the United States, but anyway. Um, well, no, we're only 37 million people. There's nothing big in Canada, really, <laughs> when, you, when you compare it to the U.S. I mean, just sheer population changes the game. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so what I noticed is running like a, a podcast that had like a mainstream audience versus one that had more of a high-end, smaller but affluent audience is the one with the affluent audience is way easier to monetize. Mm-hmm. Right. So within two years of running that podcast, we had turned that audience into a, a half a million dollar coaching consulting business. No social media presence, very tiny email list, you know, no webinars, no sales team, like none of that, none of the like the traditional trappings of things that you think you need. Uh, that was what really set me down that path. And I didn't know it was going to lead to the concept of micro famous necessarily, but I, I knew like that first inkling of, oh, you don't need to have a big audience you need to have the right audience. It was mm-hmm. more about having the right people. And it was just, I, I I wouldn't have went that direction if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes of looking at the stats and looking at the money. <laughs> Those me being off of both podcasts and just seeing the radical difference between between the two. I want to talk a little bit about first your book. So the, you, you know, Microfame is the book you released. When did you release that? That was some time ago? Uh, this is like February. Yeah. Oh, okay. So th- in 2020. Oh, right. Right before COVID. It was right. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Well, maybe good because people time. are at home. Well, people are at home. Let's do a podcast and figure <laughs> figure that shit out. So, well, that's kind of cool. So it's interesting is that uh, I had, a, a you know, over the years, you know, the number of people that I know that are, that are in my circle of influence that have written books, lots of them. And that's what they do. You know, Don R. Campbell, who is one of the, I guess, call them founders of the Real Estate Investment Network many years ago. I think he's got seven best-selling books and and and, and one of my partners wrote several books. And I just, I'm in a space where there's a, a lot of individuals writing books. And I was, everybody's putting a little bit of pressure on me to say, you know, Patrick, it's time you wrote a book. you got to get it out there. And I didn't want to. I was not, I just wasn't built for it. I wasn't really interested in it. And so I decided that it was one of the the reasons that I launched a podcast because I just thought it's easier, <laughs> it was more interesting. <laughs> that was my that was my rationale for it. Now I'm not saying that's right, but I'm just saying that's where I went. So good for you. You released your book uh, just before COVID, sadly, uh, or not? How I mean, you're you're on Amazon. Um, uh, how are you doing with it overall? You you. I mean, nobody gets rich well, selling books, really. Yeah, I was going to say it's doing exactly yeah. what it's meant yeah, to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I mean, it's got, you know, like 35 star reviews. It's not setting the world on fire, yeah, yeah. which which is fine. But uh, but it, I guess the first thing it did is it reactivated a lot of relationships with strategic partners, mm-hmm. which is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it changed 
because uh, you know, like if you if you don't run in the marketing circles all the time, like uh, you know, to to my you know to certain people, I'm just a vendor, and it's expected that I'm good at what I do. But they they don't really they don't look at a vendor as someone who's good at what they do. But I know from coming out of the out of it from the real estate perspective, where my clients were all like, I knew their business inside and out. I knew their business model. Like the for my all my first clients were like real estate team leaders, like almost like brokerage within a brokerage guys. Well, I I had run a real estate team back before the the crash. I knew all the books. I knew who the coaches were. I, I knew the content. I knew the business models. It's it's a different level of I don't know why respect, you know, it's a different, it's a different interaction when you're selling something to someone and they realize that you're not just an expert in what you do. You're also an expert in what they do Mm -hmm. and you can talk their language and you can show them how the thing that you do kind of fits into their world and you can, and you can put it in terms of their language and they know exactly what you're talking about. So when I moved into like working more with like the thought leadership crowd, um, I, I wanted to have that same thing. I wanted them to know that I really understood the business model of what, what a thought leader is and how to monetize your intellectual capital. And so I think the book is like the first step in, in showing that because it lays out the whole thing of like just the marketing strategy of how you build a thought leadership business all the way down to just the tactics of how do you get your message out there. So it's really start to finish. And um, I think it sets me up for maybe a later phase of life where I might not do, I, I might not lead a marketing company. I might just get into coaching thought leaders on how they can market themselves better. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it kind of hits a lot of things all in one, um, which is good because I realized that the first time I wrote a book, I wrote the wrong book. So don't do that. Um, this is like two years ago. I have like 40,000 words saved of a book that was just about done. And then I realized I wrote the wrong book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so believe me, you don't want to make that mistake. Well, That's re- not you, fun. You, okay, to you, have to, you have to repurpose those 40,000 words. That's all there is to it. You know, it's interesting about uh, a book, right? Because, you know, the fundamental of it, whether it's you know, subconscious or whatever it is. But when you write a book, you're an author. And, you know, that would then represents being an authority. And that's where that actual word came from. And and you understand that when people write a book as an author of a book, it sets them up to be an authority, assuming that it's accurate and it's done all the things that it needs to be. So there is a lot to be said about writing a book and there's a lot of reasons to write it. So Let's go back a little bit and tell me a little bit about your your real estate background and and what was going on. Now you're based out of um, San Diego. Yeah, San Diego now. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm originally from the Midwest. I'm from Iowa, Nebraska. Okay, and then so tell me a little bit about your real estate background and and so that we can kind of start to link some of the parts that brought you and and set you up to be doing what you're doing. Well, so I didn't go to college. Uh, I went. I've been working nearly full time since I was old enough to grab as many hours as I could get. And so there, there was a point in my early 20s where I was like, well, I need to get, like, maybe I need to get into real estate investing. And uh, so I start, well, my dad said, well, if you're going to get into real estate investing, why not get your license so you have access to more information and it's easier to make connections and you get a piece of the deal and stuff like this. So you know, all those benefits that you know about. So I went and got my license and then I got derailed. I got a hold of Gary Keller's book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. Mm. I'm like, crap, why am I getting into the investing side when the agent makes more than the investor on a lot of these fix and flip deals? Because I was thinking about you know, getting into fixing and flipping. My dad's got a, a remodeling background. We're going to do this together. And I'm like, man, alive. Like I, I got really turned on to the business model. How do you build a seven-figure team where you can withdraw from the actual selling of real estate? That, like, that captured my imagination. So that's the road that I went down. I got into it with a business partner who was my, one of my best friends and he took the buyers. I took the sellers. I went after expired listings, did that whole nine yards. 
and then the crash. And so we had a lot of seller listings that, you know, none of them wanted to cut the price to where they needed to be to actually sell. They basically said, look, we're just going to take our homes out off the market and write it out. And at that point, I was in my mid-20s. I didn't have the emotional maturity at that point to just stick it out, essentially. And so I said, all right, well, if everybody's just going to pull their home off the market and I'm really not enjoying like the, the part of working with seller clients, I got to figure out something else to do. So me and my partner started like a first seller by owner marketing company to help them sell their home. That did not go well. And so I basically just went and got a job. So that, and I decided, okay, well, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something that I enjoy because I didn't enjoy being in residential real estate. So I'm going to do something that I enjoy. So I was working, I just got a part-time job and I started practicing the drums again, which I hadn't done since I was like in my teens. And first it was a couple hours a day. Next thing you know, I'm practicing five hours a day. I'm like, I'm going to go join a rock band. So I went. <laughs> well, you, you're young. You're good looking. You'd be perfect in a rock band. You know that. I no yeah, doubt. And I was already growing out my hair. It was the end, of the tail end of my real estate team. I started growing my hair out. So yeah. So I just started letting the hair grow out. I started practicing again. I joined my first real rock band, and then I just basically chased the dream for about mm-hmm. five years. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just basically worked uh, as as little as I could to get by while I was writing. I was playing in four different bands. Uh, and basically, you know, just push that as far as I could. The, fur- the furthest I pushed it was I was in a duo act where I played piano and the gal sang. And uh, we got signed to a manager and we got pitched to record labels. So somewhere the Sony, Sony, the head of Sony Red apparently heard my stuff uh, and immediately said no. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we got that far. So uh, there was talk of like going to Dubai and playing in a five-star hotel. And the, like the contract was nearly signed. I, was, I got my passport. All fell through. So I got, uh, I got a few albums out of it that I'm proud of. And then I said, okay, I've built some marketing skills here. I taught myself how to build websites. I taught myself how to just do enough on social media to, to market my music. And I said, look, these skills are worth way more in the business world than they are in the music world, right? I could, I could, I could spin my wheels for the next five years building in a career as an independent artist. But the bottom line is I would have to spend 80% of my time marketing and only 20% of my time making music. So if I'm going to spend 80% of my time marketing, why don't I go do it for companies that'll actually get a lot of benefit and pay me really good money. And I'll still spend 20% of my time making music, but then it'll be optional. And it won't have to be something that depends on my, my, apparently, you know, my income won't be capped by my ability to make popular music, mm-hmm. which I didn't, didn't feel like I was, I just don't have the taste, you know? Um, like if you look at my, my Amazon music, thing. Like you're not going to recognize 80% of it. Right. Um, you know, I just, I, I like obscure music. And so I just figured, look, I got to take those marketing skills and I need to get serious about building a skill set that can carry me for the next 50, 60 years. You end up where you are today and you're supporting others in a, in a space. You're all for all intent and purpose marketing, you're coaching. Let's talk a little bit about podcast space. Now, podcasts, even as little as three or four or five years ago was not really a big thing. Now it's really growing. Do you still, you know, how do you look at it in terms of, is there lots of space in the podcast world? Is it being inundated? Is it like too many radio stations? Do we, do we saturate a podcast market? How do you view the podcast world with what's going on? Because I know within our own community of the Real Estate Investment Network, our own database, there's lots of individuals that actually are doing and starting to do that podcast, uh, you know, producing podcasts. And they're doing, uh, there's a number of them that are doing actually a very, very good job. And so what do you see in that space and what's the benefits of it? Because it's not easy to 
directly monetize a podcast unless you're turning it into advertising space because you've got a great following within, you know, within my community, you know, called the Real Estate Investment Network and Real Estate Investing in Canada. You know, ultimately, this is a, a this has turned out to be a very good uh, podcast for individuals interested in just business, interested in real estate investing and and listening into what's going on. So and and it supports me in growing the real estate investment network. So it gives exposure to our community. But for you, when you're coaching others in a podcast, what are you what are you driving? What's some of the key factors if somebody's trying to decide whether they should do a podcast, for example? What should they be looking at? Well, uh, so if you if you know John Lee Dumas, he's the guy that hosts Entrepreneurs on Fire. Uh, mm-hmm. He said something really good. I'm not necessarily his biggest fan in in other in other ways in podcasting, but he did say something really good. He said, "Niche down until it hurts," and and that's really the key to success in podcasting right now. I think there's still plenty of room if you niche down. If you find if you find a gap in the market that that really is underserved, you know, we and we did that in 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 the real estate space when I first came out. And, you know, there was. 15, 20 podcasts when I launched mine, you know, so you can make a case that that it was crowded then. Now, granted, it's fractured and exploded now. So there's probably between 100 and 150 podcasts just in residential real estate alone. And, um, and that's all happened in the last few years. So when I look at like, like what you think is a saturated market, you think about there's an audience of people who are listening to those podcasts, and they're scrolling through and they're looking at you know, one of their favorite shows, they're still only listening to like every, let's say they're listening to every fifth episode or every 10th episode. Well, they're, it's because they're not getting what they want from the rest of those episodes. So the question is, what episodes are they listening to? And if you built an entire show with nothing but that content, they'd probably come over and listen to yours instead. Mm-hmm. So like with the, with the team building podcast, which is the one I mentioned earlier that had like more of a higher end affluent market, like that podcast was aimed like a laser at people who are leading residential real estate teams. Now, that's obviously a very small fraction of the residential market. That's not the average agent who does five or 10 deals a year. <clears throat> These are people that were super high producing agents selling 100 homes plus a year. And then they built a team and now they're selling two, three, four, 500 homes. That was who the podcast was aimed at. And so we were talking about things that no, no regular agent in their right mind cares about. Like, how do you get, how do you boost online lead conversion from 1.3% to 2.9%. You know, they're like, really like to, to a regular agent, we're talking about stuff that's obscure, right? That's, but, and that is very, very focused. I mean, that's a really very small focused. share of the market that's got that yeah. interest. Yeah. Um, but guess what? Those are the people that were willing to pay three grand to hop on a plane to come to Omaha, Nebraska to like watch how they built that team mm-hmm. and walk away with all their intellectual capital, like all the spreadsheets and tools that they built. And so that, to me, that's the key. So if you're going to come out and you're going to try to build a big audience, no problem. Just still start small and focused. And and just I equate it back to music. Uh, start with a cult following. Like do something that a smaller group of people will absolutely trip over themselves for and will love and will tell all their friends about. And then, you know, break out into the mainstream from there. I mean, that's part of the whole concept of, of micro famous and and what I hope people take out of the book, it's not that you can't be macro famous at some point, mm. but if you're starting from scratch and you want to break in, don't try to be Tony Robbins or Gary Vee right now. Find a much smaller focused audience that will absolutely love you. Give them something super, super specific and then, you know, build up a home base where you can grow from there. So anyway, that's my that's my perspective on that. Well, it's, you know, when I when I created The Everyday Millionaire, it was 
you know, my niche was this, the realization that I had is, is I wanted to do a podcast and, and where my own interest lies is that in, not just in real estate, but in the entrepreneurship of real estate. So one of the premises that we have for real estate investors is treat your real estate investing like a business. So that's one of the things that it's, it's actually one of the cornerstones of what we teach. We're in the education and research business solutions, those kinds of things. And although that's very, and it's, and I, and I see that it's very interesting. Then the next part of it, was I just like entrepreneurs. I like the conversations around entrepreneurs and how they do it. And so with that, it, it came back to the seemingly ordinary achieving extraordinary. And where I arrived at that is that in the space of podcasts or inter that interview space, whether it be YouTube or whatever's happening, the billionaires are, that's everybody wants to focus on them, you know, whether it be the Richard Bransons or the Bill Gates or some movie star or some, you know, athlete. I think that's all great, by the way. I don't, you know, I, I don't make that wrong at all. But to me, it was like a really crowded space. Yet in, in my world, I'm surrounded by people who have achieved some really great wealth. You know, you know, maybe it's two or three million dollars or maybe it's 30 million or a hundred million but ultimately they're just quietly going about creating great wealth and as i dug into it you start to realize and, and this is by the way this is a stat that's accurate in the u.s is less than one percent of north america's population and we'll just say u.s and canada in this case i, won't, I don't know about mexico but when we talk about that less than one percent actually have achieved status of a true uh, net worth of a million dollars, which is a million dollars, not including your your primary residence. And it was just interesting that so many people strive to achieve that. That's what they're driven to do. It's like a big focus. You know, I just want to be a millionaire, whatever that conversation is. And so that was the whole premise behind it. And And so I started interviewing people that are just really cool. They work hard. They've got great businesses. They've got great attitudes. How do you do that? Because if, if, you know, most people sitting, listening in on a conversation like this, for example, and the success that you've achieved is that, well, geez, how do you get that? What's the difference between him and I? And you start to realize that there is no difference. You know, yeah. you know, you 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 might have had a great upbringing. You may have been born with a silver spoon in your mouth or you might have been born on the wrong side of the tracks or whatever happened. You may could have been abuse, all sorts of things. Right. There's all sorts of things that happen in that regard. And I thought that was a pretty interesting and it's proven to be a, a generally a pretty uh, good audience. People interested in hearing those different stories because it makes it achievable. It's Branson's interesting. Virgin Airlines, all the shit that he's accomplished is really freaking a great story. But it becomes, un, un, you can't relate to it. It's a nice story to listen to. But how do you actually relate to it so that you can put it to work? People listening to this conversation listen to your story. And if Matt can do it, I can do it. You know, if any of my guests yeah. can do it, I can freaking do it. And that's really what, so that's a long-winded kind of story about how this podcast came to be. And in what the real focus was, was just to, you know, shine a light on people that just do some really cool thing and, and never, never really get any, uh, you know, their families love them and their pals think they're cool, but, you know, they don't really <laughs> share their story and there's good lessons in there, right? Yeah, I agree. And, and, I, and I heard it even starting years and years ago when I, when I was first getting into it, I remember talking to another podcast host and him telling me like, look, I've had, I've had the Grand Cardones, I've had Gary Vee on, and you know what my top episode is? an agent who sold 50 homes in his first year. Like it was just a super relatable to somebody nobody had ever heard of. It wasn't a name or anything, but it was an interesting story of, of an ordinary person 
who did something really, really interesting and extraordinary. And that's way more relatable. And therefore that, that episode was his, I think it, at the time it was his most downloaded, like it beat all the big names that he had on the show. And that really stuck with me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so like we, like for our clients, we bring on, we try to bring on that mix of, of influential people, but we're not always going after the biggest names. Like mm-hmm. we've, we've booked Gary or we booked Grant Cardone on one of our client shows and I won't tell you which episode this is or what the client was, but he called me up afterwards. He's like, dude, that was one of the worst interviews I've ever done. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's definitely not about the big names. Um, it, it really is more about the stories. And, and I, I've, I don't know, maybe just as I get older, I come to realize that like, it's, it's, it's important for people to have a mix of, of mentors or heroes that they look up to. Sometimes you need that person who's done really incredible, extraordinary things. You know, like I, 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 I want to listen to David Goggins if I've got a workout coming up, right? I will never run 50 miles at a time in my entire life, probably, mm-hmm. but I want to listen to him talk about it because it's motivating. Mm-hmm. But you also need those heroes that are just a couple of steps away from where you're at, because you can say, okay, that what that guy just did that week long challenge of keto only or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, yeah, it's, um, in, in the past, I think when I was coming up, when I was younger, it was like, uh, my mentality was, no, you go straight to the top and you, you only pay attention to what the absolute best of the best have to say. And, uh, and I've, I've come to appreciate the value of having like proximity mentors, you know, for example, people that are on the journey with you that are either at the same phase or maybe a couple of steps ahead and paying attention to what they have to say, because they're, they're right in it, or they've been there just within the last year or two. And they know exactly what you're going through. So yeah, I think it's uh, it's important to share those stories. One of my my most popular episodes are around individuals who have coaching backgrounds. You know, Alan Kahn is an old friend and a coach. And my wife is a, an Olympic coach and, and a mental performance coach. And and I'm finding those are really really um, popular. Back to uh, you know Richard Branson, uh, a guest. One of a, a really popular guest was a guy out of Toronto named Charlie McKee, and uh, he actually had a story when he worked for Richard Branson. And it was a, just a, a, an amazing story about how he met, you know, he, had, he worked for Virgin and, and he was very young and he got on the elevator with uh, Richard Branson, had a brief conversation with him about something that they were dealing with. I don't remember the, the specifics of it. And like six months later, Branson calls him up into the office and says, I want you to go to Singapore and get it handled. It was like, it was a really, really interesting story. And I go, <laughs> now that's, that's way better than Richard Branson himself, but yeah. you know, that's a cool story. So people like, that is a cool story. but it, there's a relatedness to that, that people can have in their, in their, in their podcast. So I always like to go and dig into some background. You find yourself, you're entrepreneurial, even if you're running a band, that's an entrepreneurial thing to do, although it looks like music, right? But take me back into your your background. How did that whole journey of being an entrepreneur kind of unfold for you? You know, your parents entrepreneurial, were they in that space as well? Did you come by it or were you a, were you just a, they just showed up for you? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I'm the probably the least likely person to ever be an entrepreneur that, that you'd that you'd meet. I, like I'm jealous of those people that have the entrepreneurial roller coaster stories of they're you know selling and flipping candy at 13, 14 years old and making a profit and stuff like that. And um, because I was first of all, my dad was a pastor when I was growing up. I was homeschooled. I'm a natural introvert, 
And I, I read a lot and I spent a lot of time in the basement practicing drums and piano. Like I was, uh, that, that's essentially what I was, I spent all of my childhood doing. And my intention was I was going to follow my dad. So my dad had aspirations at one point to be a missionary. He decided instead to, to stay in pastoring uh, here in the States. But that was my goal was to do one of those two things. So the, the impulses that I have now and the way I've structured my business, it turns out, have their roots in that stuff, you know, because I'm super independent. Freedom is my highest value. All that comes from, you know, homeschooling and watching my dad run a church with virtually no staff. You know, he wasn't spending his time counseling. He was just leading the church and, uh, and had like, my mom was the secretary basically. And that was, sure. that was about it. And he actually had pastored two different churches at one time and had zero staff. And uh, so anyway, so I watched that growing up. Uh, that's the closest thing to entrepreneurialism I had in my life. I didn't know anyone who had went to college. I didn't know anyone who had a successful business. I Like I was from the wrong side of the tracks. All of my people that were in my life just worked blue collar jobs uh, with the exception of my dad pastoring. And so, yeah, come, come around to uh, starting the real estate team. I had no idea what in the world I was doing. You know, tried to read everything I could, got into a coaching program. That helped a lot. But I, I remember even being in my teens where when my intention was to go to Bible school and become a missionary, I was still reading marketing books and business and self-development books, hmm. right? Which is really odd because I really had no purpose. I, I literally read them because I just enjoyed the content. It wasn't until many, many years later, I figured out why I think it is, which is that marketing is a battleground of ideas. I love the ideas. It's also why I love podcasting because I love talking to somebody and just getting deep on ideas and concepts and stuff like sure. that, right? It, it, it goes back to the same reason I picked up theology books when I was seven and eight. It's all, it's all ideas. Like I remember talking with my dad and us bouncing things back and forth and we'd have to defend what we believe. Like, well, what about that? No, that doesn't fit with this over here. Okay, well, what do you do about this? And we would, we would go back and forth and debate. And so anyway, so there was always those threads like all the way through. But uh, yeah, I had to unlearn a lot of stuff. There's a lot of limiting beliefs around money and wealth and business that I had to unravel as I got into it. Working for my old agency and, and becoming really good friends with the CEO of that company helped a lot because I got to see somebody that was successful up close in person that was also not what you'd think of as the traditional like entrepreneur. Very systematic, super methodical, you know, fast moving, but not outrageous, you know, not, not a roller coaster of emotion. And, and I saw that example up close in person and I saw him scale from a hundred clients to over 500 clients, monthly recurring revenue clients. And I watched that whole scaling up process while I was friends with them. And I went, I can do that. If I hadn't seen that up close in person, I don't know that I would have ever really had the confidence to say I'm a entrepreneur. I just, I, I didn't think of myself as that kind of person. So I had to like, there was so much internal work around like my self-image, my self-confidence, all the limiting belief stuff that had to be cleared out still is being cleared out. Um, there was a lot to unravel because I wasn't that traditional entrepreneur. A couple of things that I'd want to unpack in that is that first off, so you it sounds like your dad and you had a, well, your parents, you guys had a pretty good relationship. So obviously having those conversations, learning those values or those morals. I mean, that was part of your, you know, the relationship that you had with your parents. We, we all carry that stuff forward, good, bad, or indifferent, and and then have to fix it. <laughs> you have to, have yes. to do all the work. It doesn't matter how good it is. There's always something to be fixed. <laughs> There's always something that screws you up. <laughs> you know, our parents, we blame them. You know, I'm a parent. So the the point is around all of that. But then as you, as you go forward, Matt, and, and you look at, has mentorship been 
a part of it. Now you worked with that friend of yours and that's kind of serves as an apprenticeship into learning how to do what he did. Have you had other mentors along the way? Is that something that you seek or do you just pay attention? I pay a lot of attention. I would say most of my mentors come through books, honestly. So I had that one, that one person, I only worked for him in person for six or seven months before I struck out on my own. And then he and I are just friends. So that, that, that's been a really good relationship. And then I met a gentleman, I booked him on a podcast back in the day, like five years ago. And we slowly built a relationship. At one point, I hired him to be a business coach. And then we realized that we should just be friends because we were, you know, uh, just the relationship evolved. And so I do seek out relationships and I do seek out mentorship. But it's one of those things where I get I get a ton of it from books. And then I just need a couple of people in my life to bounce things off of and talk to regularly to give me like an outside perspective. And that combination of things usually gets me where I want to go. But that's, again, that that stems from like freedom being my highest value. It's really like, it's tough for someone where freedom is your highest value to submit yourself to a coach where the preordained agreement is I do whatever you say. And so I was fortunate to meet a coach where he's like, that's not at all my approach. I don't think anyone should ever do that. In fact, you should always question what I tell you to do. I'm like, perfect, let's do it. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's a little interesting, just the the different approach to mentorship. You know, like you have to kind of build your own, choose your own journey kind of um, mentorship. It's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard, I'm, I'm thinking, and my memory is not good anyways, but I don't ever recall having somebody refer to a book as a mentor. So I think that's, yeah. that, that's, that's cool. <laughs> I like it a lot. But, yeah. but you know, tell me, uh, you know, you come back to values and I'm, a, I'm always, I, I'm, if I'm going to get into a conversation about values, like I, like I, I think it's one of the most <laughs> important things, but tell me about a, a value called freedom. What does that mean to you? Like, what is the uh, one, if one of your highest values is freedom, that means at some level, you're always going there. You're always living that. That's what you take. Yes. That's what you stand for. But what yes. does that look like? What does standing for freedom in that value look like for you? What does it mean to you? Well, so I've got this, I just pulled this document up on my phone. It's called uh, My Dream, Leadership, Lifestyle, and Legacy. And this is something that I go over mainly daily uh, and read it in the morning. And, but it essentially just lays out the, like the vision for my life. It's about a page long. And there's, there's one really good part of it that's a really good example of just how freedom manifests at a very uh, practical level, which is I, you know, and the, the statement is this, <clears throat> this is one of the statements that I read. I will have enjoyed absolute control over who I came in contact with every day and limited myself to scheduled outbound calls and in-person meetings of my choosing linked to projects that excited me. And so that's like a, that's just one of those things that's like a North star mm -hmm. that I always come back to that whenever I feel out of control, I look at things like that and go, okay, do I have absolute control over who I'm, who I'm talking to? Are my meetings structured in such a way where they're mostly outbound calls, me calling someone else or jumping on Zoom with somebody where I know who it is, I know what the meeting's about, I have the agenda. Like just those things that I've noticed about my personality where I feel more comfortable and in control. And, uh, in the past, I might have beat myself up about that and thought about how I could change. And understanding that, that that comes from a place where freedom is like that highest value, you realize, oh, this is why I feel that way. This is why when I'm, when I'm not, when I feel out of control in my calendar, I feel a sense, like I feel constricted. I feel a loss of freedom. And, and learning how to build and structure the business around that has been super, super liberating. Right. So now if I show you my calendar, I can justify everything that's on my calendar. 
and for the most part, every single appointment has to has to justify itself and fight for itself. I feel control over just the day-to-day experience of my life. And I built really, really good systems in the rest of the business so that I don't get pulled into things that I don't want to get pulled into. Right. Um, so, and, and all that comes from just realizing what my values were and then looking at the business as malleable and flexible and going, okay, the business is flexible. I, my personality is the thing that's actually the hardest to change. Mm-hmm. So let's build a business around me that works really well with my personality. And once I started working on that a couple of years ago, it, it, it changed everything. Um, I started, I stopped beating myself up for not being that roller coaster entrepreneur who wants to work 14 hours a day. And I went, no, I've, this is how many hours a day I have of really good productive work. Now let's build my business and my life around maximizing that time. And then let's unplug and figure out how I want to refresh just as a, as a practical example. So yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the values conversation, it literally changed everything. You uh, make a really good point around a couple things. And, and I, and I think that so many business owners and entrepreneurs don't slow down long enough. This is such a great conversation because I, I see it's, you know, in all the coaching I do with, you know, with the rain, within the rain community and small business owners, what they don't have is they're, they're you know, we look at the, what we call the time, money, knowledge, TMK, the time, money, knowledge, focus matrix. When you look at your time, when you look at money, when you look at your, uh, your knowledge, and when you look at your focus, you know, where are you in the matrix? Like, what what are you lacking? What do you have lots of? What do you not have enough of? And it's just a way to, and it all ebbs and flows often. But if you don't have zero awareness of it, you know, one of the things is I don't have time. I'm too busy. And it's such a common, common conversation to have with entrepreneurs because they live in this very reactive world. And to your point where you use it, you know, you talk about control, but then you connect it to freedom. And and that's a, an interesting link. It's, it's really well I, I like that concept. I've never linked it that way myself. But the reality of it is, is that so often entrepreneurs or firefighters, they're reading and reacting and they actually, they actually pride themselves on their ability to read and react. And I know that one because I lived that many years ago. Now, it took me a long time personally to get to where you got to, which is I control my, I live my life by my calendar. And if, if it's not in my calendar, it, then it's not real. <laughs> Yeah, it does not exist. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it is, not, it is not present in my world or consciousness. You know, when we were and when we were still traveling, it's like you know the it's a classic case of you know the you know getting in the back of a cab at an airport. Well, first off, getting to the airport and having you know and and then looking at my phone, going, "What's my flight number and who am I flying with?" Kind of thing. It's like that. It's that controlled in my brain and getting in a cab and they're saying, where, you know, where to? And I go, well, hold on, let me look at my calendar. Like it's, it, and I, and I know that sounds silly, but it, it's almost that way. Oh yeah. And, and I, I, my phone message on my phone says, don't leave a message. I'm not going to check it. <laughs> you know, that's, I guess. My, my voice mailbox is, <laughs> is full and I can't get Verizon to clean it out. I'm like. Good enough. <laughs> Good enough. Yeah, but it's funny, right? Is is because there is a lot of um, you can't. It, it, to be an entrepreneur takes creativity, you know. And and if you're reading and reacting, we actually, you know, I just had this conversation uh, with uh, my executive team yesterday. A couple of people on my executive team, and we we book. We just finally because we're going on to a new project, and let's throw three hours once a week into our calendar for a creative. That's all it is, creative. It's just to actually 
schedule that time to say there's nothing else in this space but being creative on this project. Creative is just getting stuff out on the whiteboard, putting it all out there. There is no bad ideas. They're just ideas. There's no yes. execution. There's no how are yep. we going to make that work. We don't give a shit. It's just an idea. So yep. the, the point of all of that is, you know, I, I really like what you said. It's a, just a cool place. I'd never considered it being, you know, freedom being a value and linking it to that way. But I realize that... And that's what I've come to in my life finally, you know, which is I don't even take a, I don't take cold calls, you know, like if you phone me and your name comes up because it's you, I'd probably pick up the phone. But if it's not my wife, if it's not my daughter, if it's not one of my team, like I'm not picking up that phone. I'm not interested. It's like swipe <laughs> the other way. Now, just out of curiosity, are you, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? I, I'm neither. I what an omnivert. Like I, I can be, yeah. you know, I can be big and bold and gregarious, but I can also just hang out with myself for a week at a time with absolutely no problem. You gotcha. know? Okay. And I'm, I'm yeah. and be satisfied and be happy with that as well. You know. So I don't know. I'm somewhere. My wife Stephanie is very much an introvert, yet she's very much in a world that you know you'd think she was an extrovert. And I and I see that yeah. quite common, right? So you said mm -hmm. you're an introvert. Mm -hmm. But you yeah. do some pretty extroverted things. Well, sort of, although it manifests itself in, in ways like what you just talked about, which is I don't take incoming calls either, period. Um, it's If it's not scheduled as an outbound call on my calendar or a meeting that I that we're both showing up to, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't take those phone calls either. Um, but okay, Matt, let's, let's face it. If I phoned you and you saw it, you'd pick up your phone, right? I would, I would absolutely <laughs> pick up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there there are a few people. I, I agree, but but yeah, the 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 principle is the same, which is I've just I've figured that out about my personality. I I would consider myself an extroverted introvert. Like I know how to turn it on when I need to, mm. and and there's a like there's a small circle of people where I can hang out with them for eight hours and not feel tired. 100%. But if there's more yeah. than a couple of people or yeah. if it's a group of people, mm. I've got about an hour in me, mm. and then I need to withdraw. And I'd rather speak in front of a thousand people then go to a cocktail party. Like, mm -hmm. kill kill me now if I have to go network. Yeah, oh I'm, I'm that way. I'm that way too. Yeah, so so maybe maybe we're very similar in that way. Yeah. I just, I, I remember growing up considering myself super introverted because um, I just wanted to read and I wanted to play instruments and stuff like that. But as I've, like, as I've stripped away, like, insecurities and stuff like that, I think more of my natural personality has come out to where I, like, the, the more extroverted I got, the, the older I got. But yeah, going back to the the freedom and control thing, for me, it's about, it's about choice. And I want to, I want to feel in control of my day. And so you talked about like putting out, like taking pride in being able to put, put out fires coming out of the company I used to work for. He took pride in the fact that he didn't have to dip into and put out fires. And so I watched that in person where, where it freed up so much of his creativity to push the business forward because he wasn't putting out fires he hired people, he built good systems, and he held them accountable to the system. And anytime there was a fire, you know, metaphorically, his first question was, did we follow the system? Hmm. Yes or no? Okay. Yes, we follow the system. Okay, great. The system needs to be improved. Did we follow the system? No. Great. Training needs to be improved so that we follow the system next time. And it was that that was such a really good visceral example. I, I carried that over into my team now. And so now that's a famous question within my, my own team. And they all get it. And so because of that, I don't, for the most part, have a lot of fires to put out. You know, every once in a while, Apple will screw us over and not update correctly. And then it's like all hands on deck, like whatever. Sure. But um, 
but I don't, but I, yeah, I don't have fires to put out. And I found that like when you do and you're in that reactive mode, yeah, it's just, it's insanely hard to be creative. It's insanely hard to put a lot of mental thought into things that push the business forward. And I think we just weigh, like as entrepreneurs, we weigh overestimate our own mental and energy uh, capacity. Mm-hmm. And like I've dealt with stuff like chronic fatigue and adrenal fatigue for years. So I never had like abundant energy stores. So I, so I, I knew right off the bat, I just, I don't have 14 hours a day of, of fire putting out in me. So I had to, like, I was forced to build a business to accommodate that stuff. But it also had that side effect of like freeing up my creativity. Cause I, everything is so systematic in the business that it just frees me up to think on a different level the majority of the time. I think it's such an important conversation because as listeners, you know, as I said before, as real estate investors, you know, we have many that of our listeners are real estate investors, are business owners, but it's such a tough lesson to get. It is, I think, one of the most fundamental challenges that entrepreneurs face, which is how do, you know, they talk about time management. And although that's a part of it, you know, I think behind that is identifying what are your highest values and then living true to those values, because it's not just a switch. I mean, once you identify what your values really are and, and you know, I often in my coaching focus on what's your high, what's your five highest values and and we break them down from there. And then but the, even the, the conversation of values is difficult for most because they don't know what their values are. They don't even understand what a value is. And, you know, they'll talk about, you know, morals, you know, that's different than values. And so when you started to get that, like, did you come by that naturally? Do you think that was, you know, kind of a result of the relationship and the conversations you had with your pastor father? Or was it something truly that you read and, and, you know, as you know, your books were your mentor, you know, mentors is where did you get that from? Do you think, Matt? Well, so a couple things, um, and we're talking specifically about the values conversation, like mm-hmm. the understanding of your, of your values. So number one, uh, Tony Robbins, I would say, mm-hmm. the, for books first, because I came across the books in my way too late, mid-20s, mid to late 20s, goodness. Um, I wish I would have come across those in my teens. My mentor at my old agency did come across Tony Robbins in his teens. Mm-hmm. So at one point, he sat me down like three years ago. He had just got back from a Tony Robbins event that that changed his marriage. And, uh, he's like, dude, we need to do your, your values. It's like, so I'm just going to pepper you with questions and you're going to answer them. And then I'm going to tell you what your values are. So he basically just sat down for like an hour and a half and spit out this list that I still have, uh, with me. And, uh, but, but I knew what he was talking about cause I'd read the book. So I, so I had the intellectual foundation to know where he was going with this. And so when he was asking me the questions, I understood what he was getting at. And yeah, it turns out freedom was the highest one, but we came out with a list of like seven values. Mm-hmm. And I started playing around with the, uh, like moving the order around. Mm-hmm. What would my life be like if I valued uh, legacy first over freedom? Well, my lifestyle would be different. I'd be putting more time into this over here. What if I valued family? You know, what if I valued um, uh, kids, for example, right? That that did not appear on the list, by the way. Um, <laughs> but let's say it had, and let's, let's say, say it, it was over freedom. Sure. Uh, well, then freedom looks a lot different, right? Yeah. You got to figure out what does freedom look like if your highest value is family. So I started playing around with the order of all those things, and that was really interesting. But yeah, so I mean, it, it had a couple effects. Uh, number one, I did change some things. Uh, it definitely started to change the structure of the business. But the But the major thing that it did was it freed me up from a lot of internal self-talk and dialogue about, well, you're not doing this. And well, what about this? And what about that? 
and like this conflict. And what I realized is that I have values that conflict, right? Like leadership is one of my highest values. Um, if I could accomplish everything that I, that I'm setting out to accomplish, but I could do it just myself without a team, I wouldn't do it. I remember having that conversation with my business coach and he asked me that question. I said, no, because that would be running from the leadership challenge. I enjoy the challenge of leading people and I want uh, us to get to the goal. I don't want to just do it as a single consultant. That's a, that, that came out of that values conversation. So when I started to realize those things, it started to affect the way that I built my life, but it set me free from a lot of that internal condemnation of, of the conflict and various values. And I, once I ranked them, I realized, okay, could I do this? Yes. But the reason I don't do it that way is because this is a higher value. So I am making a deal with myself that I'm doing it this way. And I'm going to stop condemning myself for this because I've chosen to do it that way because this value it's in accordance with a higher value, a value that ranks higher on the list. So yeah, like it just that conversation, like I said, it changed everything. Um, but that was one of the like the the freedom from internal self-criticism and self-condemnation was one of the biggest ones. I don't know if I ever said that out loud before. There you go. I want to dig into that in a minute because you know, there's those are important conversations because they're really common. You know, in all of the years of coaching, and you know, so I took on the values conversation, gosh probably 25 years ago, I realized now even that as, as clear as you can be on what your values are, being true to your values can be easily, you can be easily taken off that, right? It, you really can. And, and so I've learned a lot. I've coached values a lot in, like, in, in the concept of values and, and the philosophy. I think it's the most important conversation you can have, not only for your life, but for your business. I, I, it just is. And, and I see the most successful people that understand their values. You know, I often say that your life is a reflection of who you're being. So whatever you got going on in your life, you know, if if it if it sucks, if you got a bunch of people that are toxic, it, it's just you. That's a it's a reflection of who you're being. Because if you and and who you're being is a reflection of your highest values. And if you don't understand your highest values, who you're being is going to be a shit show in some way. And that's where that toxicity shows up. It just is. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. let's put it this way. You know, I always use a very simple example. If if your highest, if one of your highest values is let's say um, health and nutrition. Okay. And, and so drugs are not an option. Okay. You know, smoking dope or whatever it might be is not an option for you. Okay. Let's just say that's your stand. People who do drugs and smoke dope can't show up in your space and hang around. They, I mean, they can be there, but then they just eventually they drift away because you're not sharing a common value if you stay true to your values. And I found that over the years, the, that, that values conversation and more than ever because of just some of the stuff that I've been going over the past through myself over the past two or three years is that in business, it's the easiest thing in the world to look across at somebody that's asking to do business with you and go, you know, something's just not going to work. I, I, I really see where we don't share common values. And here's the fundamental about that. Your values are no better and mine are no better than yours. Yours are no better than mine. They're just different. Mm -hmm. And if you can't align in a values conversation, that's when things go off the rails. And if more business owners and entrepreneurs could understand that, they would make far better decisions. And so if I'm not sharing common values with you, but I do business with you anyways, and I force the river and I compromise who I am, that's a whole integrity conversation. I'm then also taking up space for 
those individuals I want to do business with that do share common values, right? There's only so much space. And so that's why it's such an, you know, that's why I want to spend a little bit of, uh, of, of why I wanted to spend time on this conversation because it's, it's so, so incredibly important. And I think there's a lot in it, but go back to what we were just talking about a little bit where you're having this, you know, this internal dialogue with yourself where you're questioning yourself or making yourself wrong or whatever that might be. You know, what were some of the realizations you had in that when you started looking into the values conversation, when you sat down with that coach, what was showing up for you? Well, I'll give you a, just a really practical example, because um, you mentioned kind of like that that situation that you find yourself in, where there's somebody sitting across the table from you, essentially offering you a check, mm-hmm. and you're like, mm, you know, you get that you get that gut instinct inside of you. And I remember talking to my coach and saying, like, look, I could be I could be growing the business faster if I expanded my definition a little bit of who an ideal client is. He's like, well. Do you, do you want to serve those people? Like, would you be excited and, and enthusiastic to take them on? I'm like, well, no. It's like, well, then stop beating yourself up for not taking them on mm-hmm. and, the, and the growth that you're missing out on. So because really what would happen is you'd take them in, you wouldn't enjoy the experience and it would cause you to start self-sabotaging the actual growth of the business. So, so you've told this story to yourself that you could be growing the business faster if you just took on people that were outside of your ideal said, I don't think that's actually true. That's just a story you told yourself. So you're beating yourself up over nothing. What would actually happen is you'd find a way to self-sabotage because you weren't enjoying the people you were taking on as clients. And, and he said, you need to release yourself from that sort of that story that you've told yourself, that self-criticism that you're telling yourself. And, and just, you need to find a way to go get more ideal clients, right? Go solve the marketing problem that's bringing some of the wrong people into your world, start tightening up your marketing message, whatever you need to do, but mm-hmm. just go find a way to focus more on bringing the right people in so that you can proudly, gladly, happily say no to the people that aren't good fits. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that set me free from a lot of like that self-criticism. And then I think a lot of entrepreneurs have, you know, like we, For sure. holy cow, that, that my business isn't growing fast enough. It's like, well, what is fast enough? Mm-hmm. You know, like if it was growing, I mean, and you know what it's like when some something starts to grow and it's like a treadmill picking up speed underneath your feet, even that is uncomfortable, you know? So it's like, well, it, is the business ever going to grow right in that sweet spot where it's not too slow, but it's not too fast, but you know, like that's just not, that's not how life works. And so you have to get comfortable with both. You have to get comfortable with the, the seasons where the business grows a little slower and the seasons where it explodes for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the natural ebb and flow of things. So that, that's a really good practical example of, of something that was affecting me every single day that having that values conversation fixed it. The thing about the values conversation and understanding it is I wish, you know, I always hope for people that they can get to it. And, you know, I've been in business 35 years and and the values conversation keeps coming up time and time again. And when I get off, when I get out of integrity, and because it is an integrity conversation with I'm when I'm out of integrity with my values, which... I've been drawn down paths and, you know, you, I, you know, I kind of beat myself up for doing that, but it's easily done, right? Like it's, you can really lose focus. At least I shouldn't say I could, I have found my propensity for losing focus. Now I now own that and I'm going, no, like it is simple. These are my values. This is the values of the business. My, my management team aligned with what we call our ethos, which is just a easier way to describe to the general public, we talk about the ethos of that. Now, now all of a sudden, what we see to start to happen is is that 
the clients we attract into our community are aligned with that ethos. And if they aren't, they, yeah. they, they drift away, right? That's all, yeah. uh, you know, is now what we're seeing happen more and more, which is great. In, and in 35 years of business, I can say that there are moments in time where the team and the business are so aligned, so fun. It doesn't even mean that it's more profitable than ever or that revenue is greater than ever, but it's so fun to get up every day and go to work and be part of a team and and have that alignment. And, and you know, like right now, that's where I am at with my team. Like it's so aligned. It's like, I'm so happy and proud of the the team and what they're, what we're accomplishing and what we're doing and what our stand is for the world. There's no, like, we just are aligned. You know, it doesn't mean we agree every time, but it's, if we don't agree, it's in an, an execution thing. It's not a philosophical values yes. conversation. No, I don't think we should do that. I don't think that's in alignment with what our, what, with what our community like. Those are totally different co- conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. it, and it's so important to get there. And that's why this message, I think, is so important for listeners that if you're in that entrepreneurial space, I want to just drift off a little bit, but it's still in line with it, Matt, is you talk about leadership and like you, I love the practice and, and really paying attention to being a great, great leader. That was kind of always one of the things I wanted to be was a great leader, whatever great means. But when you look at leadership, you know, there's, uh, you know, some discussions that go, well, are you a natural leader? Are you a natural born leader? And I don't believe in natural born leaders. I, you know, that's my own belief and system around that. I think some have a, a unique personality character trait that they're more, they have a propensity to be a good leader. Are you the study of leadership or, or are you just kind of go with your gut? How, how do you view the leadership world? Well, since you mentioned that you have like personality traits that, that lend itself towards leader or, or causes other people to kind of respond and interact with you that way. I don't know that I would have articulated it right off the bat, but I do agree with you. I think you and I probably have that same belief uh, I think leaders are for the most part made, but if you are, you know, if you're young and you're confident and you're outspoken enough, you know, like other people are going to look to you for leadership and then you choose whether to step into that role or not. And all of a sudden you find yourself leading, even though you didn't really set out to do that. So I think that can definitely happen to people at a young age. It's interesting because I watched my dad exhibit a certain type of leadership, especially like leadership against organized resistance uh and and standing your ground standing up for what you believe in that like that kind of leadership and that's one kind of leadership but then i also watched he had kind of a discomfort with taking responsibility for what other people did and i inherited that in a major dose right so like there there was a a a big kind of internal debate in my in my 20s and into my 30s whether i whether i wanted to just go do something by myself and not like have a team and stuff like that because I didn't want to put myself in that position where I was accountable for what other people were doing and making commitments to do things that that really wasn't in my control because that clashes with my freedom, right? Um, being accountable for what other people do, you know, having to rally other other people together. But I so value that same thing. Like the idea of being a good leader is so like a part of my identity and the goal of who I want to be that I couldn't walk away from that challenge. So it was only, I don't know, maybe three months into, you know, being an independent consultant that I hired my first person. And that's still my best advice I can give anyone is hire someone 
right now. Like if you're a solo person, if you're a solopreneur, if you're an investor that's just been doing it by yourself, like go hire a VA right now, even if it's two hours a week. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's no match for the leader, like the growth that you'll experience as a leader by having to have someone that comes to you and says, what should I do now? And you have to look at yourself and go, well, what low act, low value activities can I take off my plate and give to this person? And how can I make sure it gets done correctly? That there's just no substitute for the, like that way of thinking. And, um, and then that leads you down the path of, you know, becoming a student, hopefully of leadership, mm-hmm. you know? And so that, that's what I would consider myself is I'm definitely someone that's made myself by the choices that I've made, the mentors that I brought into my life, the work that I've chosen to do, even the structure of my business and stuff like that. Like I choose the path that requires the most leadership growth as opposed to the path that I could just strike out on my own, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. You know, you talk about choosing and, and being in choice and and making those decisions. But you just in a in the world of decisions, it just how are you as a leader and but how are you as a decision maker? Uh, are you a cautious decision maker? Are you a, you know, do you make decisions quickly? How do you, how do you process decisions? Because I see time and time again in, in the coaching that I do is that there's often decisions, people are afraid to make a decision. And, and so how do you handle making great decisions? Man, that's a good question. Um, I would say I tend to be on the cautious side and because I'm the type of person, and I think this goes to a musician background, like your confidence comes from your sense of being good at what you do. Mm-hmm. So once you're there and you feel like you're good at what you do, decisions come instantly, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm much better at hiring people now than I was four years ago. So now decisions come a lot faster, right? Decisions to hire, decisions to fire, whatever the case is. So I think if it's something that's that I'm on uncertain ground, I'll take more of my time. I'll sleep on it you know, different things like that. Mm-hmm. But once I feel comp- competent and then I had, therefore I have confidence in that area, then the decision-making speeds up a lot to the point where you can make instantaneous decisions. And the bottom line is just, I've always been this way. Like I'm a person that wants to take in all the information and I'll take in input. But the bottom line is at the end of the day, it's my gut that makes the ultimate, it's like the ultimate arbiter of the decision. So I don't know what camp that puts me in as far as like a decision-maker mm-hmm. uh, style. Uh, but I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are probably like that. Like you take in all the information, you take in the advice, and then you end up doing what your gut tells you to do. But it's but it's informed by all that input. You know, it's not like you disregard it. We don't just unilaterally do what someone tells you to do. You just take all that input in, and then that informs your gut reaction. The reason I ask is because it's a, it's a conversation I've had with many over the years, and and not not necessarily on the show, but definitely I've had that conversation with many people about decision making. My chief growth officer in the real estate investment network, uh, JG Francoeur, you know, JG and I have a conversation about le- or uh, about decision making, and he's a really really positive guy, very very confident in what he does. Young is is very accomplished in what he's done, but he's literally the guy that'll jump out of an airplane without a parachute because he thinks he knows that he'll build one on the way down. Right. Right. And he's a hundred percent confident. So decide, go. And, and that's how he does it. But he also has, I thought he gave me a context once, which I thought was really, really good, which was you can't make a decision. You can't build something standing still. You have to make a decision to move forward. And then as you move forward, 
things will show up that you'll need to redecide, make new decisions. And where people, I think, get stuck in a decision is they want to have all the answers before they take a step. And that's where people shut down. And yeah. and and I think we all, as, as business owners and entrepreneurs, leaders, I think that's where we put ourselves at risk is, is waiting for it to have all the answers. And the reality of it is you'll never have all the answers because things are going to evolve and change as you go forward with that decision. And indecision, of course, is, you know, is in fact a decision. You know, not deciding is a decision to not decide. Yes. And, and we're... <laughs> people get stuck. And I just had this conversation recently, and, and I think decision-making is such a, it's such a skill to develop, you know, and it's one of those things that does take practice. It does take pushing the envelope. It's like going to the gym, you got to lift a little bit more weight to get stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think decision-making is a lot like that. And it yeah, was interesting. I, I was having a, uh, a conversation with a, a coaching client in, in a group session that we have, but he was struggling because he's working 14 hours in a, a day in a career that he really, really didn't like. And, and yet he was trying to invest in real estate and he's building his portfolio and, and, and he's got this job and I want to, I want to spend more time on real estate. And I go, you have to make a decision. You have to decide to quit your job. And it doesn't mean you quit tomorrow. It means I'm making the decision to quit. Yep. And now I'm going to work backwards from that decision. What do I need to do to make that happen? But if you're trying to stand in the middle and say, I hate my job and it takes 14 hours a day and I want to do this over here, you will never get off that fence. You will ride those two mm -hmm. horses forever being frustrated. And that's the other part of making a decision, I think, Matt. And and so I, I put that out there. Is is does do you see it in in your world that way as well? Uh, similar, yeah, I think so. Because there, there's a couple things that that I learned that are helpful. The first thing was reading some biographies, reading some business books, and realizing that some of the people that are considered really really sharp businessmen and deal makers are not wild risk takers. You know, Richard Branson said this, Donald Trump has said this, like we, you know, we are calculating people. We, I want to cap the downside and make sure I have as big a piece of the upside as possible. Jay Abraham said essentially the same thing. Like, so, so once you realize, so that was one, that was one little data point. It's like, okay, well, you don't have to be a wild risk taker in order to be an entrepreneur. You can be calculating, you can be methodical, you can be, you can be someone that prepares. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that was helpful to learn was that no matter how much you prepare, you will always have fear. And there was a really good metaphor, and I don't remember who said it, otherwise I give them credit. Otherwise, I'm just going to take it for myself. Sure, but, do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they said something to the, the effect of, like, look, when you go into the cave to slay the dragon, you don't, carry, you don't get to carry the magic sword into the cave with you. You find the magic sword in the cave when you're fighting the dragon. I'm like, ooh, hmm. that's good, right? So that sense that, like, you can, you can do all the preparation that you want, but when, when you come to the time of making the decision, you're still going to feel that, that pang of, of whatever that is, fear. And you have to realize that you may not feel 100% equipped and prepared. That's exactly how it's supposed to be because you don't find the magic sword in the cave until you go into the cave and face the dragon. Then you find that resource that gives you that, that puts you over the top and, and it helps you to win that last battle. And so anyway, those two things help me to, to go, okay, I can be methodical. I can be calculating. I can, be, I can cap my downside and that's okay. It's okay to limit your risk. Mm -hmm. But then make the decision and know that most likely nine times out of 10, you're going to find the magic sword in the cave and you're going to kill the dragon. Mm -hmm. that's, so that's helped. That's good. 
When we go back, I want to go back to Microfamous for a minute. Now, you know, you made a decision to go forward with that business model and grow that. Now, was that really just organic, that just evolve over time? Or was it a very clear, this is what I want to do? And then, you know, what is, you know, if you were looked at Microfamous and, and if you had a tagline, or maybe you do have a tagline for it, <laughs> you know, what is that tagline? Well, that's, that's the easier question to answer first. So yes, it does have a tagline. Yeah. Uh, the tagline is <laughs> become famously influential to the right people. Beautiful. So, oh. the, first, so the first part is you got to have the, you got to know who the right people are. Yeah. And then the goal is just not to be famous to everyone, but just become, you know, Tom Cruise level famous to that, that group of people that you want to serve. Uh, as far as where that came from and how it came about and did it come about like organically or deliberately, I would say both because it came about through... Uh, experimenting with the business in a very intentional way with a lot of deep thought along the way. And like you said, like having that, that time to be creative and brainstorm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it came out of those, those deep thinking sessions uh, to where I arrived at like, okay, here's, here's the business model that's up on post-it notes in my bathroom, mm -hmm. right? Here is the exact business model that this is going to run on um, that kind of stuff. It, it took a while, you know, of just experimentation conversations with mentors, a lot of deep thought. And yeah, people definitely like the more you're in reactive mode, the less you have time for that deep thought. And you're you're not able to set that really compelling, clear, vivid vision of where you're going. So you're just kind of in motion because you're in motion. You're not in motion because you're running on clean motivational fuel. You're just kind of like inertia, um, which is where most entrepreneurs live. And I didn't want to be that way. And so like, as I've gotten clear on what the dream is, what the goal is and how my business model operates, then I felt like I was able to run on cleaner motivational fuel, right? So I don't read, mo like, I don't read motivational stuff. I don't listen to Jim Rohn. I don't listen to anything that's motivational other than to get myself off the couch and working out, right? Because I need it in that area because I don't <laughs> like to work out, right? So guess what? I listen to motivational stuff about working out, but I don't need motivational stuff for business. Because the thing that motivates me is the vision of what the dream is. Like, what is the end goal of the business that I'm working towards? And what's the impact that I want to make? Like, that vision is very vivid and clear. So I draw my motivation from reminding myself of that vision. So that's like one of the benefits of, of that process of just figuring it out, yes, organically, but then putting in a lot of deliberate thought into it so that the vision in my head that I've built is very vivid and very clear because then that trickles all the way down into my motivation levels on a daily basis. Well, yeah, and and you're talking about a vision. It could, that vision could, uh, you know, we often hear the phrase, you know, what is your why? What is what is it? You know, what is it that you're connected to? Because if it's just about money, that will phase out really, really fast. And I think those are lessons that people don't get sometimes soon enough. And and of course, mm -hmm. so they're frustrated that they're not making more money. Well, okay, but you know, it's got to be a little bit bigger than that. You know, that's what happens. Yeah. So Matt, we're I've taken up lots of your time, and so you know, we'll start to round wind down a little bit here. And, and, and so I do that. One of the things I like to do is just, you know, have what I call some rapid fire questions that are, are rarely really rapid fire, but they're, 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 they're kind of fun questions. I'll, tr I'll try to keep the responses pithy to do my part. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about one thing though, is that, you know, you talked about working out, but do you have a, a routine, a, you know, a self-care routine, a personal development kind of routine or a physical routine? How do you look after yourself, you know, to have the energy that you have and the clarity that you have? Okay. So actually the, the last part about clarity is really, I was going to mention that anyway. So I'm glad you mentioned that. 
Um, so there's a little doc, there's another document on my phone that I read basically every day that says it's called my clarity. And it's basically in order for me to reach all my goals, I only need to build and optimize these five systems. One of those is my personal development system. And the other is my health, just physical health system. And so, yeah, I'm constantly experimenting with new, new research, new things, new supplements to put into my body to feel better, increase my energy levels, sleep better, stuff like that, just so that I can show up at, you know, the best that I possibly can into the business. There's been an interesting evolution on that. I used to have like a really extensive morning routine and very, very regimented. And um, I haven't had to do that as much since I cut my schedule down. You know, I, I basically stack my schedule between seven and noon and then everything after that's optional. So I find I don't wake up needing to like brace myself for an eight hour day full of calls like I used to. So I move some of those personal development things into the afternoon. So now I work out in the afternoon, not in the morning, you know, do some, whether it's meditation or taking a long walk, I've started to walk more. So I moved some of those self-development things into the afternoon because I found I just didn't need it as much. Like I actually woke up in the morning and I wanted to get into the business and work. So now I'm working at, you know, 7am or I'm reading or whatever. Um, so that's been a little bit of a, a an evolution just, basically just this year um, mm -hmm. since I've kind of um, rearranged my schedule and stuff like that. But all that comes a lot easier, like the personal development stuff, the like taking, taking care of yourself stuff comes a lot easier with my calendar being like kind of themed out. So Mondays for the most part, I don't have calls booked, which changes the dynamic of waking up on a Monday morning. You know, I, like I actually put my staff meetings on Tuesday morning, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Most people do their staff meetings first thing on the Monday morning. So I move my staff meetings to Tuesday morning. I have all of my like podcast recordings, guest interviews that I do on other people's shows, um, talking to clients, stuff like that is on Wednesday and Thursdays. And then Fridays, for the most part, I have one uh, meeting with one of my team members for marketing. And then I have, I do, I'm still co-hosting Real Estate Uncensored, which I'll jump on in about 20 minutes. And then I've got a little bit of time in the middle for what we're doing like here, right? Just either being interviewed or whatever the case is. So each of my days, I kind of know every single week when I wake up on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday or whatever, like I know what that day is going to look like. So it reduces my mental energy and it, free, it frees up a, a, a lot. Um, and then I can kind of build self-development routines and stuff like that on top of that. So that was a way long-winded answer. I did not expect to give that that, uh, that long of an answer. <laughs> but but, it, but it, no, but it's a great answer. And, and this goes back to just having that clarity and then the commitment to doing what you need to do to look after yourself. And how does that, you know, how does that fit? Like, I know for me, you know, working out in the afternoon is it, it, my body. I'm more, I'm just better. I, I have, I enjoy working out in the morning way more than the afternoon. And that's just, I've always been that way. And, you know, I've trained uh, for 35 years and and that's always been my thing. And I've tried afternoons many times, but. Yeah, I mean, I, see, I'm not that way with mornings. I've yeah. tried. I've tried to be that guy. I've done the 4 a.m., done the 5 a.m. And it's yeah. just, my, yeah, I'm just completely beat. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think you do definitely do have to do stuff that works with your biorhythms, well, you, whatever you that do. happens to be. You do. And sleep is really important. Uh, you know, I'm mm -hmm. a 5 a.m. guy. And, and so I know that six hours and 30 minutes is really as what I need for sleep. I don't need more right. than that. Not that I don't ever sleep more than that. I rarely do. And when I do, I let myself, I don't, it's not like I wake up to alarm ever. I just don't set alarms. And, uh, and that seemed to work for me, but it's uh, having that awareness and, and taking the time. I always say to, you know, I often say to parents and particularly parents, you know, is you need to look after yourself because you're the hub of the world. You need that energy. And if you don't look after yourself, you don't have what it takes to look after your family in a really profound way. So that's prioritize it. Not, it's not about you. 
It really isn't. It's about your family, but you have to look after yourself. It's like put your oxygen mask on first, right? You need yeah. to look after you so that you can do a brilliant job of looking after your family. It's just a way to shift it so that you don't feel guilty for taking time for yourself. You know, yeah, exactly. that's what many parents do. They do. So iPhone or Android? iPhone, reluctantly. Ah, reluctantly. Well, okay. Reluctantly. You, good. You qualified it. Yeah. Okay, good. Does it count if I own an Apple device, but I also hate Apple? Okay, that's that's where I really feel. Well, is it, I asked the question because within our team and, and our kind of, it, you know, there's always these debates about Apple. And of course, a couple, when when people drink the Apple Kool-Aid, man, it's like, it's it's serious. It's intense. No, so. never was a Kool-Aid drinker. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, other than, uh, you know, Micro Famous, uh, a book that you gift a lot or one of your, one of the, a book that really stands out for you. If you're like me, if you, you read so many books that it's hard to say because, you know, they're just, I've read a lot of books and. Well, it's funny because I've got, I've got two of them here for extra gifts. Yeah, there you um, go. We talk about energy, mm -hmm. the power of full, yeah, the power of full engagement. Yeah. Uh, Jim Lauren, Tony Schwartz. You ever come across that book? No, before? I have not. I have it's, not. It's amazing. So I mentioned like, you know, that we've got um, like a store of, of energy, you know, to kind of look at ourselves as like a, um, you know, that like decision-making draws that energy down, interacting with people. If you're an introvert, draws that energy down. That, that's, that book is where I got that perspective. So I think the act, yeah, it's the whole tagline is managing energy, not time is the key to high performance. So it's not, yeah, yeah, just, I read that years ago, made a huge impact on my life. And I, and so I, from that point on, I never looked at time management of being a problem. Time management was a priority issue. It was what was, what mattered was managing my energy yeah. levels. Brilliant. I got to read that book. It's like, I, it's incredible. I totally aligned with it. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A job that you do, even though you hate it, just because you're good at it. Any of those? Mm, man, that's a good question. You know, uh, project management. Hmm. Yeah. Don't like it. Can't vouch for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I can do it, but I do not enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, because here's why. And I didn't, we didn't talk about this much, but I, I've alluded to like systems. I love systems. Yeah. yeah. Um, one, one of my other books I would recommend and, and like to recommend a lot is The Systems Mindset by Sam Carpenter. And I love building systems, which means I love things that you build once and they run. I do not like things that are projects where you get done this and then everybody dusts themselves off and goes, okay, what now what's next? We're yeah, going to do yeah. another project. I'm like, no, no. Like I want to build things that last. So yeah, projects like project management, that's part of why I hate it is I only want to build systems that then run without me. Well, it's interesting that you, we talk about systems, you know, within rain, within the real estate investment network, we talk about investing in real estate. It's a system. There's processes, just follow yes. the system and you can yes. be very successful investing in real estate. Like don't screw with the system. You know, that's, that's it. And it works. Uh, do you have a favorite inspirational quote? A favorite inspirational quote? Yes. All leadership starts with self-leadership. Brilliant. I don't know who said it, so I'm going to take credit for that one, too. <laughs> you may as well. <laughs> Favorite swear word. Oh, man. I've gotten away from it, uh, but GD. I used to say GD a lot. No kidding. GD it, yes. Uh, Every day. That's not my so toe. bad. Oh, I, I would throw my phone across the room. But yeah, I just, uh, I've, I put drumsticks through walls while practicing. Yeah, I was, well, a, I was a very angry person at well, one point. <laughs> Son of a pastor, that would be like, sacrilege don't use that i know and i don't mean it that way just for some reason it feels so satisfying but maybe that's maybe it was because i was suppressed from using curse words growing up 
that, yeah, I, I think I went overboard. I was actually going to say, it wouldn't have surprised me, and it, because you're the son of a pastor, that you may say, no, nah, I just don't swear. I've had guests on uh, that say, like, no, I don't swear. I go, okay. Yeah. Shut the fuck yeah. up. You no, don't I, swear? I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's me, right? Like, I'm sorry. Mm. I, 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 and, and somebody uh, once told me that, you know, if you have to use profanity, you just don't have a good enough command of the English language. And I, I go, I don't agree. I don't, I don't believe that. I, I don't agree. I think sometimes, no. you know, sometimes you got to make a point. It's got to be an F-bomb here or there, right? You got to do yes. it. So, yeah, I was going to say, nobody accused George Carlin of having a small <laughs> vocabulary. Like that oh, guy, yeah. that oh, guy was powerful. He was. But what's funny is my co-host on, on Real Estate Uncensored uh, is also a, he's not a son of a pastor, but close, like, you know, parents of 40 years that have been involved in the church. And he's the most foul-mouthed person I know <laughs> to the point where we had to call the show Real Estate Uncensored just to pre-warn people what they're about <laughs> to get into. So when people ask me if I swear, I'm like, well, not really, but if I had a problem with it, I couldn't be co-hosting this show because it would be like nails on a chalkboard. So I'm fine. Don't worry about me. <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates? Oh, man. Well, there's a, there, there's a traditional answer, but really I just want to know who in the world built the pyramids? That's <laughs> like, was the guy with the crazy hair on the history channel? Was he right? That's all I want to know. Uh, that's great. Room desk or your car. What do you clean first room? I know better than to ask a musician this question, but I'll ask it anyways. Favorite tune. Favorite tune. And if you don't have one, I get it, but you know, I yeah. don't have, one. I don't have one. All right. I'm going to, I will, I'm going to dip into super old school. Sure. Keith Green, 1981, Song for Josiah. Okay. R random obscure. Now, I, now that's not what I listen to every day. It's a heavy piece that he wrote for his son, who then later died in a plane crash with him the mm. month I was born. Mm. Yeah, but he was my hero. Like, he's the whole reason I play piano. I used to play all his stuff growing up, so I can't. I, I got to give him a shout out. Favorite movie? Princess Bride. Are you watching, or do you have a favorite Netflix streaming series that you're watching? Yeah, I'm re-watching this obscure TV series that only ran for two years on ABC, and it's on Hulu right now. It's called Better Off Ted. It's one of the smartest written, funny shows ever. Hmm. It's awesome. So many, so many great one-liners. If you like Princess Bride and you like that, where the joke flies by you so fast, you get it the next time around. <laughs> that's what this is. This show is full of them. It's awesome. Oh, that's great. And what are you grateful for, Matt? I am grateful that during the insanity of the lockdown, I was still able to go a few blocks away and walk around Mission Bay. Hmm. If I'd been living just about anywhere else in the world, I would have driven myself insane. But I was able to have a little bit of normality through the craziness just by having the same place to walk every day. Yeah. Well, there's never a time that I'm not grateful for getting to know a guest a little bit better. So I am grateful for having the opportunity to meet you and have this conversation with you. Like you, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that we live in the country and uh, we're on a great piece of property in the beautiful Fraser Valley of British Columbia, Canada. And uh, I'm really grateful for that today. Well, I'm grateful for it every day, but it really showed up for you when you said that. <laughs> so Matt, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, 
If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.